Was he crushed? Did he suffocate? Or did he starve to death? He was crushed. He wasn't even in the Murphy bed. The Murphy bed fell on him. Just slammed several times on him. R.I.P. Sin Boyfriend. R.I.P. Sin Boyfriend. I love how there's like a red plum bop over him. Like, of course he's not happy. He's dead. Welcome to another episode of My Favorite Feminist. My name is Megan, and I'm here with my co-host, Milana. Hey, guys. You're listening to the, I guess at this point, tri-weekly podcast that explores feminist figures in the arts and sciences. I'm an artist recording from outside of Richmond, Virginia, where I'm on traditional Powhatan land. And I am your friendly Philadelphia science gremlin recording on traditional Lenape land. Today, we're going to learn about a... Polish figurative sculptor who survived the Holocaust, and a Curie you've never heard of. Oh, how curious. <gasps> I just died. Okay, I'll, I'll, I'll be good with the puns. <laughs> I just died a little. You're oh, welcome. You're it's, welcome. It's episode 50. Five zero. <laughs> five zero. Five zero. <laughs> yes, today it is our... 50th episode, which is very exciting. So we've been doing this. We're on our, our third year now. Three whole years. What the wow. hell? How did this happen? We're going slow and steady. It's crazy. I did not think, we, I mean, I'm glad we we did, but I did not think we would get to year three. I'm not going to lie to you. Oh, I know. I know. I figured maybe at some point one of us would go to grad school or something and we just have to like <laughs> tap out, which I mean is Probably still going to be a thing in the future, and that's fine. Life I mean, happens. But yeah. No, yeah. I'm, yeah, as soon as I get into a grad program, it's going to happen. That's fine. That's fine. I, I mean, hey, I was thinking, depending on how our last presidential cycle went, if I needed to bitch out and get out of the country via a MFA program, it would have been me. I understand completely. Yeah. So, you got to do what you got to do. So, at some point... We will have to face our impending podcast mortality, but not today, although kind of because um, I I'm, I might be talking about someone today who did die a little young. Oh. Sorry. That's, so That's why I'm going first. Well, I'm here for the ride as long as she burned brightly while she was alive. Yes. Yes. Her work is very fun. Type of artwork that just as a figurative artist myself, I really, really identify with. So when I came across her work recently, I was like, oh, my goodness, I need to cover her. So I thought, perfect for the 50th episode. And then I started researching her and I was like, wow, this is kind of depressing. Why do I always do this to myself? (laughs) Because history is never actually happy. I mean, sometimes, and I'm definitely going to try to do a feel-good episode next episode to make up for it, but you know what? Here we are. Okay, that's fine. And yeah, so I think we're going to have fun with a figurative Polish sculptor who made these really weird but fun abstracted segments of like the female body, which I kind of sort of do myself, so. That's right up your fucking alley. It is. It is. So I don't usually talk about like my type of artwork on here at all, but... So I'm a figurative sculptor and painter, and recently-ish, I spent way too much time working on my largest painting today, it's three by three feet, of my my belly rolls. I imagine people asking, like, oh, what piece of art are you working on right now? And it's like, all right, there's no nice way of saying this. And it just blank stares when you're like, wait, you're working on a close-up painting of your belly rolls with the creases and little fine peach hair on it, and they're like, wait, I'm sorry, what? Do you get paid for that? Like... Yes, and you know what? Don't even just be loud and proud because I showed my coworkers at the like the radiology department that I work at now, mm-hmm. and they can't get enough of your shit. Like <laughs> that's why you that Thank one you. day you got additional like one or two or three <laughs> extra people. That was me. They're all my coworkers. <laughs> all right, all right. It's all checking out now. <laughs> and like my boss was like scrolling. She's like. I could do this all day. I have stuff to do, but this is amazing. And I was like, yeah. <laughs> oh, it's too funny. That's my best friend. <laughs> yeah. yeah, that's me making weird sculptures and, and paintings. Mm-hmm. But so this painting, I just like, I had it out of, 
get it out of my system. It's a close crop. I was brushing my teeth one morning and I noticed all my little tummy rolls and I was like, well, the colors and the horizontal line. I'm like, this is this is going to be a painting. I made it a painting. So now I have this giant ass painting of some tummy rolls. And the first piece I saw of the sculptor I'm doing today, she made these giant stone sculptures of tummy rolls. Oh my God. It's like the physical manifestation of the painting that I did. And so it's figurative, but it's also weird and abstract. And I was like, oh my God, yes, I have to do that. So that is why we're covering 20th century Polish sculptor, Alina Szaposnikow. Okay. Can you spell that? Because I'm about to Google. <clears throat> All right. Well, I will just say that I listened to an hour and a half scholar lecture on her and she said Szaposnikow, Szaposnikow, Szaposnikow. You spell her name S. Z-A-P-O-C-Z-N-I-K-O-W. Chaposnikov. <laughs> okay, I think I found her. Yeah, I found her. Yeah, and the, the work that I'm describing is, is her 1968 work, Big Bellies, and they're, it's about five oh, feet tall. I they're big. See it. They, oh, my God. It, it is literally just the stomachs. There's, like, no additional... Yeah, just like in my painting, I did like a close crop. So yeah. she's working from a very similar visual sense, except she was doing this type of work in the 60s and, you know, I'm doing it now. So that's why we're covering it. Another 20th century sculptor. But, you know, this time it's an artist that made the human body's like visceral components like central to her work, which is something I really personally identify with. And I'm like, you know what, for our 50th episode, I'm going for it. So that's why we're here. It's magical. They're really fun. And her work is really weird it is it's so you it hurts i know oh my god it's the these lips yeah yeah i don't want to get her set ahead of yourself Mm, okay just go just go does this woman have a penis there is one that has a penis you're right nice i'm digging it so i i will preface today by saying that there's not a lot of biographical details available in alina right now in english that's a little depressing but I feel like that might be more of a language issue because in her native Poland, Alina is like a highly regarded post-war artist. And the Museum of Modern Art in Warsaw, their website has like a great online archive of her work. Oh my God. Which is really helpful. But it's only been in the last 15 or 20 years or so that interest has kind of spread to Western Europe and over into the United States. I, I but, can't imagine that because like her work is so weird. Like you think we would be all about it. I know, I know. And I think there's just a few cultural factors that kind of go into it, especially for the time period that she was making work that we'll go over in a little bit. But when I first saw her work and then started researching, I was like, wow, I'm I'm really surprised because the quality and how visually dynamic and unique her work is. I was like, how is this not, how, how is she not better appreciated here in the United States and elsewhere? Exactly. So there is some good news that with Alina, while there are aspects about her life that are depressing, since her passing, like, there has been growing interest and academic appreciation for her work, which is cool. Good, good. So it's something. It's necessary. So today we are heading all the way back to 1926 to, like, a good-sized city in Poland, about three hours away from the Poland-German border. And that is where Alina was born into a Jewish family. Cool, cool. Well, I mean, some red flags. Not cool, cool. Yeah, 1920s. 1920s in, yeah. Europe. Yeah. Jewish family. Yeah. yeah. Now, considering <laughs> that both her parents were doctors, like, I'd wager that they were at least comfortably middle class, like, maybe even upper middle class. Mm-hmm. And, like, we do know that Alina had a younger brother, but I've got no info on him beyond that. Oh, that's fair. And shit hit the fan for Alina starting in 1938 when she was 12 years old. Her her dad died of tuberculosis. Megan! I know, I know. I, I feel like so, I feel like we're not making this shit up, guys. Like, like a lot of people died from tuberculosis. Oh, just wait. There's more later on. Oh no. Yeah, this is a two for one tuberculosis special. Uh, <laughs> there might be more tuberculosis later. Oh no! Oh no! All right. Well, if someone's doing our imaginary podcast drinking game, this is a very sloshy episode. <laughs> Oh, God. Yeah. So bad. Um, the fact her dad died from tuberculosis, like, that sucks. But it also meant that he didn't live long enough to see his family put into concentration camps. No! 
Yeah, you know, Hitler kicked off World War II by invading Poland yeah. in September of 1939. Yeah. Details are light here, but it seems initially the family was placed into a ghetto for two years from 1940 to 1942, and then they were relocated to various concentration camps. So Mom and Lena, they were together for a bit, you know, working as doctor and nurse, respectively. Mm-hmm. Ultimately, they were separated. So... Mom, brother, sister, in the mid-1940s, they were all in different concentration camps. Jesus. Yeah, which I didn't realize. There were over, like, 40,000 in total. Oh, my God. 40,000 camps? So that's consolidating. Technically, the majority of them were considered – they were slave labor camps. Oh, my God. But still classify as concentration camps. They're really only primarily for, like, death camps, but really everyone was dying at these. So that includes slave labor – you know, the death camps, ghettos, brothels, and prisoner of war camps, too. Jesus Christ. So basically, every big city in town, there was a concentration camp yeah. outside of. Oh, my God. That's so, yeah. that's so disgusting. And so when Alina's camp was liberated in 1945, mm-hmm. she was 19 years old. She completely thought the rest of her family was dead. Oh, my God. Which wasn't entirely the case. So her younger brother... We, we know, did die in 1944 at the camp he was at. Oh, my God. But her mom, even though at the time she didn't know it, her mother was still alive. Please tell me they got reunited. They did. They they get reunited later on. So that's that's a bit of good news. I'm going to call my so, mom later. I know. <gasps> Sorry, guys. I know. We're jumping in really heavy really early on. <laughs> I, I promise. We're talking about boobies later. It's great. Boobies. Okay. Think of the... But, you know, like, after the war, Alina, she was one of... Many Polish Jews who just get the fuck out. Right. Yeah. Just peace out. Yeah. I mean, there were a good many who did want to, like, return home. But even after the war, there was still very severe anti-Semitism, like, within Poland. Mm -hmm. But, like, by that time, by, like, 1945-46, you couldn't blame it on the Nazis anymore. Mm -mm. No. No. Yeah. So, I mean, to this day, Poland still has a very fraught history with what had happened during and after World War II. And it seems like there's a little bit of this culturally pervasive attitude of like, well, if we just don't talk about it, it'll go away. As humans, we're not great with like confronting shitty things. (laughs) No. And we see something similar here in the United States, noticeably within our southern states, Mm -hmm. not wanting to recognize things things. like, oh, I don't know, fucking slavery. Mm. It can be a very similar type of attitude of like. I just ignore oh it's not that big of a deal oh that was like years ago it doesn't yeah. matter anymore it doesn't affect mm-hmm. anyone anymore no it actually affects a lot of people it just doesn't Bullshit. affect you yeah 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 or it does affect you but it affects you positively because you get an upper hand on you it. benefited you benefit your family's benefited for generations yeah. from this inequality yeah you just conveniently don't see so i feel like it's a very similar type of attitude that is kind of pervasive there mm-hmm. so, of course it's not with everyone but it's it's a bit of a thing yeah, so Alina, she, like, changed the spelling of her name, and she claimed to have been born across the Poland border in the Czech Republic. Wait, 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 wait. So she, that was not the original spelling of her name? I couldn't find details to see how she slightly changed it. But basically, she, like, modified it a bit and was like, if anyone asks, I'm not Polish, I'm Czech. Oh, my God. Because <laughs> that's how much further she yeah. wanted to distance herself yeah. from it. Yeah, she just wanted nothing to do with it. Oh, man. So... After, you know, her camp is liberated, it seems like she promptly heads to Prague and gets enrolled in art school and starts studying sculpture. Oh, okay. Yeah. So between 1945 and 47, Alina seems like she's pretty dedicated to focusing on sculpture, learning old school figurative stone and bronze sculpting techniques under like prominent Czech artists. And then when she's 21 in 1947, Alina heads to Paris to learn sculpting under under another artist. Okay. And, like, after World War II, like, Paris was, like, the place to be for art in the Western oh, world. Man. Paris was... I mean, it was hot shit. Yeah. After World War II, not so much things were shifting at that point over to New York City. But even in the late 1940s for Alina, like, that was the best place for her to be. Yeah. Like, it was easier to get... More feasible, I'm sure, for her to get to France than it was to get to um, the United States. Yes. Yeah. yeah. And especially when you, like... After what she had been through as a teenager and you come out of it, like, imagine just the complete lack of resources. Like, you've lost everything. Exactly, yeah. Like, you think you've lost your family. There's probably very little, like, financial support. Mm -hmm. Like, it's just absolutely devastating. And now you're supporting Um, yourself with 
you know, art. And From that's, scratch. That's really yeah. hard to do. Like, <laughs> well, it seemed like thankfully at the time there were mechanisms to actually help support artists. And I know that when she was in Prague, like she was paying for things because she was working as a stonemason. Oh, nice. She was obviously able to keep her head like above water and mm-hmm. to, to keep moving forward, which is pretty impressive. That That's really um, cool. She was able to apply what she learned about stone to, to something that she could market. Yeah, to make it profitable, even mm-hmm. if it's more doing like sculpture grunt work, like mm-hmm. she's still getting paid for it. Right. So yeah, so she heads to Paris and that's where she's introduced to like a much more vibrant and robust creative scene. Because it's Paris. Yeah, there's just so many international artists that were still, you know, heading there. Paris has the key to your heart. She like she made some really big names there. She met her future like first husband there, a Polish art historian. <gasps> so she's meeting all these people. It's great, and she also contracts tuberculosis. No. Wait, can we pause real quick? When she met her husband, did she tell him that she was Polish or did she just keep that a secret? I have no idea. <laughs> like I like I said earlier, biographical details. It's are funny, she pulls very herself slim. She pulls herself away from the culture and then she falls in love with a Polish man. I this whole time, like I don't even know if she spoke French. <laughs> I have no idea. I have no idea. Oh my god. Um, so, yeah, when you're speaking Polish, it's a little bit of a giveaway. Yeah, like, um, what is it? Czech, Czechos, Czechoslovakia, they speak? I don't know. I did not look that up, but that was a good question. Yeah, because then at this point, she would have three languages under her belt. Four, because she lived in a concentration camp that was run by Germans. German? Yeah. Maybe. Language spoken. Czech. Czech. It's, it's related to Polish. Mm-hmm. They're like. Brother-sister languages. Yeah, I imagine maybe like a Portuguese is Spanish maybe. Mm. Kind of, sort of, not really. I have no idea. <laughs> um, so anyway, she dies of tuberculosis. She does. That is the end of today. Goodbye. <laughs> <laughs> On to you, Milena. <laughs> um, no, so she actually caught a fairly rare type of tuberculosis. Because uh, tuberculosis isn't already terrifying enough. It can sometimes spread outside of your lungs. Mm. And she had a variety that spread into her chest cavity. And at the time, there really wasn't a treatment for it. Mm -mm. But she was able to get on an experimental drug, an experimental antibiotic that did cure her TB. Yay, medicine! Well, considering it was still experimental at the time, downside was it did cause infertility. Oh. But she was alive. She was alive. I mean, if she didn't want kids... Yay, medicine. <laughs> I, well, roller coasters on this one today. Oh, my God. And it, it seemed like at that time, France also kind of caught on to the fact that her paperwork wasn't as legit as she claimed it was. Dun, dun, dun. She did lie about it. And they were like, mm, yeah, no, sorry, you can't do that. Yeah. And in the early 50s, like, at the age of about 26 or so, she ends back in Poland. No. Well, I, you know, she actually does settle and start a family. Oh. Oh. So the Polish art historian that she met in Paris, they get married. And in that same year, in 52, they adopt a baby boy. Oh. Yeah, and I found a really sweet picture of them holding their little son and, like, an old school, like, baby basket Online, so we'll include that in the show notes. Bassinet, yes, that thing. That thing. I don't know. I don't have babies. I've got a dog. I only know the word bassinet because they're in Sims. So if I have you can. There you go. Yeah. Thank you for that. (laughs) (laughs) Just put whenever you have a newborn in the Sims, you just grab a bassinet and stick it in there, and then put the newborn there, and then watch it wiggle until it grows up. I hate hate the newborn stage. Anyway. I'm sure there's a lot of parents who might agree with I you. Like, I like it's very messy. Cheat my way. I'm pretty sure I, like sometimes I just like cheat them up two stages so they don't go through the infant, and they don't go through the toddler. They just become children because they're so boring. You know what? I wouldn't say boring for an actual child. I think chaotic. Oh yeah. No, I like had to spend way too much time with my cousin's toddler and he wouldn't stop crying. And I wanted to drink a lot, a lot. I mean, yeah, 
Children do have that effect on some people, so I sympathize. <laughs> no. <laughs> we could just skip those those steps, maybe go to like maybe a five year I don't know. They just children just always seem obnoxious. But anyway, bassinets. Yeah, but <laughs> Alina, like if she wanted a child, right. so they adopted. So she had her son. Also during the same time when she returns back to Poland, she's like, Holy shit, my mom's alive. And they reunite. What? Yeah. Okay. So that, that was a really big thing. So some good things happened in Poland. Like, Alina, like, up to the 1960s, like, she's essentially working as an artist for the government. What? Well, Poland, after the war, it was a Soviet communist satellite state. I'm, okay. USSR said to Poland, they're like, yeah, you're ours now. Um. Kind of, like, s- scooped them up. Oh, I feel like Russia did that recently, right? <laughs> yes. Yeah, that's with Ukraine. There, there's a part of it that they're like, we're going to annex. This is ours now. And everyone else is like, the fuck you will. And it's it's been a bit of a stalemate <sighs> for about five or six years now. That's insane. That's yeah, wild. Like, that you could just be like, that, that thing I'm looking at right now, it's mine now. Wild. To have that kind of mindset. It's even more wild because right now the Russian, the rest of the international community is kind of like, okay, like no one. It's crazy. No one stepped Nobody's in because then it in. just risks sparking, yeah, like an inner an international conflict. So, like you're Russia, yeah. you already have so much land. Well, it's the thing; they've got a lot of land, but not a lot of people. I know. Well, Putin, he's up to some shit, but that's not what we're here for because we're not there yet. Okay. Uh, we're at the part where Stalin has just died in 1953. Oh dear. Well, this means for Poland that after his death, the country is kind of considered in a thaw because they're not suddenly under such hardline Soviet control. Yeah. And that means that for Alina, there's plenty of like pro-Poland like national art to create as like national propaganda. Oh, nice. So she's doing like very traditional monuments for this government-backed like social realist art. Mm -hmm. So sculpting very traditional like Polish-Soviet friendship sculptures yeah. like monuments yeah uh, monuments to the victim of Auschwitz while Alina is forced to conform her artwork to like this government style mm-hmm. and narrative of art like at the same time like she's making a living as an artist yeah fuck yeah because the government's like no we need artists to create these things mm-hmm. to help with like you know this whole national idealism of like Soviet friendship mm-hmm. and you know all that other propaganda BS which I mean to be fair in the United States we were doing a similar version of it ourselves oh yeah so been there, done that. <laughs> Another soldier to fight the war against communism. I, yep. <laughs> so, same thing. Now, going into the 1960s, there's a lot of change happening in Alina's life. So, Poland isn't doing too hot politically and economically. Mm-hmm. At this point, her and her husband, they have divorced, but they do stay really good friends throughout her life. Okay. And in 61, her mother does pass away. Oh, no. And she got that extra time like with her mom. So that was, she, she did. Yeah. She did, which I think it probably meant a lot to her. And the fact that, like, her mother got to see her grandson grow up mm-hmm. and to be a part of his life. Yeah. So I'm sure that was a really big deal. But a lot of things are kind of in flux and are changing. And for Lena, she took the, this time as, as an opportunity to just move to Paris for good. Nice. But, like, legally. Yeah. Presumably, because that's where <laughs> she spent the rest of her life. <laughs> and I did not get... I did not come across anything where she had to deal with, like, immigration agents or, like, their version of ICE knocking on her door. So I do not know. Oh, my God. But come 1962, like, interest in Alina's art, like, her personal art, it is starting to pick up. Mm, yeah. Because, like, during this, like, thaw period in Poland, artists can finally start exploring these, like, previously off-limit topics like surrealism. Because mm-hmm. if it wasn't state-approved, it was not state-approved. Right, right. So in the late 1950s, Alina starts creating, like, her own personal art, you know, completely separate from this government-sponsored work. And this is where things start to get a little weird and fun. She got real weird. It's subtle. It's really great because (laughs) the museum I mentioned, they've got a pretty good catalog of all her work, like, done by years. Mm -hmm. And to start with her early work and to to jump, you know, every three years or so, you're like, you can just see her descend into this, like, (laughs) figurative madness and i am all for it <laughs> because they, they her work starts like traditionally figurative mm-hmm. right she emphasizes the female form she's doing these full figures and she's doing busts kind of like i do mm-hmm. personally 
And there's even a point in the 1950s where she's working in ceramic, making pictures with faces on them. Ah, she's you. Uh, which I was like, hey, I have a whole series of like mugs with faces on them. <laughs> oh, imagine that. Oh, my God. But like as the 1950s go on, Alina starts departing from very traditional representations of the human figure. Yeah. And she, she gets kind of blobby. She... Hmm. Blobby. Things get loosey-goosey and blobby. Blobby. Oh, God. She made lamps so, uh, in the shapes of a lips. Yes, that is a little later on. <laughs> For right now, what she's doing is exploring how much you can reduce a human form with it still vaguely being recognizable as a human form. Oh, man. Yeah, she's really playing like push and pull with how much you can subtract away. And one of her notable works from this period highlighting this change is a 1957 piece titled Mary Magdalene. And it honestly looks like a nightmare Gumby reject. That little claymation figure. (laughs) It's like, it's elongated Mm -hmm. and it's very like plastic looking in terms of like the modeling of it. Yeah. And it's like, you're like, that's kind of scary, but it is technically end of day. I'm like, that's still a human form. Wait, hold on. If you look at it right... Let me see if I can find her. Mary So it, it's just a great example of how she was really looking to push the traditional boundaries of figurative artwork. Oh, it does look like a Gumby. Oh. And it's quite tall. I think it's about four feet tall. Oh, it's like something out of it. It looks a little like Gumby and the sculptures from Beetlejuice had a baby. Yes. Thank you for that extra, extra visual aid I had not considered. <laughs> <laughs> Am I wrong? But it, it's still, it's... I mean, it's weird, but to me, I'm like, this is, and it's really intriguing to see in her overall body of work how that is a marker for her, a big stylistic change in her work. Yeah. Oh, it's huge. Yeah. So there's an author, Amy, I'm going to mispronounce her name. <laughs> Sorry. It's another Polish last name. It's hard to pronounce Shemil- Polish name. Wait, what is it? It's C-H-M-I-E-L-E-W-S-K-I. I am the worst with Polish names. Like I'm just the worst with names. When you add extra, extra consonants, like, I am, I'm done. I'm out. I tap out. Well, I'm just going to say it really confidently and really fast. So, author Amy Chalewski, that is not her last name. I am so sorry. In her essay about Alina, which we have a link to in the show notes, she suggests that in the this, this shift of her work, Lena, quote, may have seen fragmentation as a liberating gesture, freeing the body from its ideological baggage and the constraints of an externally imposed identity. That sounds right up your alley. Well, yeah, and it, it makes sense because for Alina, her work with the social realism, she was trying to, like, uphold these, like, idealized values of, like, you know, the workers and, like, women's bodies mm-hmm. as, like, basically a means of reproduction for the state. Mm-hmm. And so you want to depict people who are, like, big and healthy and robust and... Here she is completely departing from that. And so it's a really interesting, like, she's running in the opposite direction of, like, what she's been essentially forced to create. Oh, man. Alina moved permanently to Paris in 1963. And, like, we know at some point her son joined her because he did help out as a teenager, like, in his mother's studio. Oh, that's so nice. Yeah. And her creativity took off in Paris. And it's it's the work here that she made that, like, Alina is the most well-known for and also is the most weird. Like, that's the stuff you're looking at on Google right now going, what the hell? She began casting body parts, you know, typically her own. Mm-hmm. So they're fragmented casts of, like, her lips or her eyes. And she became, like, mixed media in her material choices as opposed to just working with plaster or mm-hmm. clay or, you know, singular material materials prior there's some polymer shit going on in here yes and that was actually really cutting edge for the day mm-hmm. which is kind of hard to imagine because plastic is just everywhere but she was using these newly developed synthetic materials like resin and expanding foam like in her work and alina she was even consulting with specialists at chemical companies to work out like what material would be the best to incorporate into her art pretty cool because the stuff is actually it's last to this day and there's another artist who's working roughly about the same time, um, German-born American Eva Hest. Mm-hmm. And she made sculptures of – she made sculptures using similar materials, but a lot of those started um, – Deteriorating? They started breaking – yeah, they started deteriorating over the years. Oh, no. But Alina, however, you know, she's very adamant to try to make her artwork last as long as possible. Oh, it's lasted. So, 
But like taking these synthetic materials, Alina, she's combining like plastic with stone and plaster and creating these abstract but always fleshy sculptures. And into the mid-1960s, they're still fairly conventional by today's standards. Like back in school, like Alina had done a slightly stylized, like a, a nice self-portrait in clay. Mm-hmm. But by 1965, she's created this work, Double Self-Portrait, with this like smoothly like undulating torso form oh, is she? that's like black. And then on top, there's two rows of like cast mouths, like stacked. And the bottom row is black, but like the top row is white. Wait, what's it called? So big departure. It's Double Self-Portrait. Double self and she she has multiple versions of this where she plays with different aspects of repetition with the casted mouth that she's used mm-hmm. and she stacked them in various ways. So she was someone who definitely took a concept and she would do um, a handful of iterations of like the same thing. Oh. All slightly different. Oh, I love it. Where they're like Yeah, it's really stacked. Oh god. It's really visually striking. And like it it works. It's weird, but it works. As weird as it is, she gets weirder. Oh, yeah, she does. So a year later in 1966, Alina is really pushing her use in plastic material and shifting from these, like, abstract human forms to really isolating body parts. <laughs> and a great example of this are these, like, these mouth lamps. Yeah. And so she casts her own mouth, and then she placed them on these really delicate stems with the light embedded, like, in the mouth, creating this lovely soft glow. Oh, God. So creepy. Yeah, they look like these weird mouth plants that just grew up from, like, the ground. Oh, my God. Oh, oh, another grand example? The tits. Yeah, so that's a little later on. But, like, her preference towards segmenting, like, the human body, like, it's even more amplified after her 1968 diagnosis of breast cancer. Yeah, she was 42, and it's actually then when she started incorporating breasts into her work, along with the the visual style of using eyes and mouths, too. Oh, no. And that diagnosis apparently seemed to really spur her work and pushing what she was doing, like, further. Yeah. I, I think because of, like, this imposing, you know, potential of mortality. Shit. So it's that same year that Alina creates the big belly sculptures that I mentioned mm-hmm. yeah. in the beginning. And she's also like manifesting the fact that her body has betrayed her in creating tumor sculptures oh. using skin-like plastics to create these blobs with faces on them. Oh. And she's like embedding photographs into the layers and the effect is very haunting and very jarring. I literally just clicked on it. And it's noticeable because at this point in her creative career, she's gone from creating these like traditional sculptures where like, you know, everything's like vertical and standing up and monumental to like these tumor pieces she would create multiples of and they would just be displayed like on like the gallery floor. Um, like there's no pedestal for them. It's just like they're there. Oh my God. And they look like, oh God. Ugh. Ugh. I can't. And like you mentioned, like, Alina, she's also incorporating cast breasts into her work now. Yeah. And, like, there's one breast-themed work from 1971 titled Motherhood, and it features these two sets of, like, cast breasts nestled among these, like, embryonic sac-like forms that have, like, photographic faces, like, embedded within them so you can, like, see through the material. It looks like they're covered in cellophane. Kind of. She dipped and she would layer, like, resin and polyurethane to get, like, these translucent qualities and also make them kind of skin-like because you could, you know, see through them. It's, it's creepy. It's, that creepy. shit's going to haunt me in my dreams. Thank you. You're welcome. You're welcome. <laughs> um, you'll like this then. So she also shifts from taking life casts and, like, rendering them as, like, 3D forms to taking life casts and essentially flattening them like dried flowers. What? But, you know, like, with skin. Oh, God. <laughs> Yeah, and, you know, in Alina's case, like, it's it's her sunskin that she casted and then flattened. Oh, right. I was wondering with that, yeah, that's like the, uh, like, with the feet. Yeah, so she would cast, like, his legs and his torso and his face, and she'd, like, flatten the material and, you know, kind of pin it to, like, a flat board, and you're like, well, this almost looks kind of serial killery. Okay. 
Mm-hmm. All right. Yeah, this looks like she wants to wear it as a, an apron, but okay. <laughs> I mean, Alina, like, she recognized how unsettling her work could be, saying about it, quote, all I'm able to produce is ungainly objects, which, given the translation, also could be called awkward objects. Mm, got it. I try to preserve the fleeting moments of life in the transparent polyester. I try to preserve life's paradoxes and its entire absurdity. Mm. Oh, no. This one's called Peter's Head. And that's her son's name. Yeah. yeah. That's his head. She cast it. Yep. And then squished it. Yep. So central to her work was always the human body. And she really explored how far you could push and pull it to have it be, like, recognizable. Oh. Some of this is... It's actually still recognizable. No matter what she's done, yep. it, it still looks kind of human-like, and it's it's not pretty, guys. It's great. It's well done. It's not pretty. It's not supposed to be pretty. No, no, and she definitely recognized that. Now, so she did pass away young at the age of 46 in 1973. I know. So... That was from kind of secondary effects of cancer. At that point, it had spread from her breast to oh, her her bones. Metastatic. Yeah, but I mean, I will say that she, like she passed away in a medical center, like in the French Alps. So, oh, okay, not a bad place to go. No, very beautiful, very scenic. Oh God. Yeah. Like after her death, Alina's work was exhibited. Notably, there was a show put on in France, and like the collective art world response was just like, eh, it was like a shrug. Oh, fuck off. Yeah, it didn't really take off. Um, but meanwhile, in Poland, like, her work has become, like, well-recorded and archived and, you know, continued with academic and public interest, like, from the 1970s on. National treasure. I mean, there, she's considered, yeah, she's considered, like, a leading post-war artist. Mm-hmm. And it, it wasn't really until the 1990s that in America and Western Europe, she was, you know, quote, like, rediscovered. Yeah. Oh, God. I hate when that and happens. I feel like... Uh, yeah, I, I feel like there's like three reasons for that. So, I mean, one is language. A lot of the documentation about her is in Polish. Two, like, there's art world favoritism for Western oriented content. Oh, for sure. Every time. And so she was like Eastern European. Mm-hmm. And then there's the additional fact that, you know, she was considered behind like the Iron Curtain. You'd be like, okay, yeah, but her last 10 years in life, like, she lived in Paris. Yeah, exactly. Like, at this and point, then, she's. Like, more Parisian than she is. Yeah, like, she's international artist at that point. Yeah. And then during her lifetime and after, like, Alina's artwork doesn't really fit into any neat categories. No. So it's not pop art. It's not abstract. It's not, like, new realism. Nightmare. Which was really popular. Stuff of nightmares. New, (laughs) like, new realism was really popular in France at the time. And, like, while her content is Mm female-driven... It's not necessarily or explicitly feminist either. No. It's just like, hey, that's a body. It's it's very open-ended in terms of how people interpret her work. And I think one aspect of it is that during her lifetime, she, like, never talked about her experience, like, during World War II. Oh, yeah. I mean, who would want to tell that to anyone? And at the time, there was an attitude of people who were like, we don't want to know. Yeah. Like, we're past that. It's over. Right. Like, let's move forward. Right. So there was that kind of cultural aspect as well. And, like, Um, it's super brave, like, one, to have lived through it, and two, to, like, to to talk about your experiences. Like, I'm not saying that you shouldn't. It's just, it's got to be hard. And it takes a certain sort of iron will to pull up those emotions and those memories and... And share that and and be open with it and to relive it every time you're talking about it. Every single time. And remember, like, because of her parents' background, like, she worked as a nurse. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I'm sure she saw some really fucked up shit. So um, I feel like because that's something she really didn't talk about or, or address since her passing, that's one point of a lot of, like, art historians and scholars will kind of project on, like, how much of her potential trauma during that experience later, like, manifested in her making these really um, – segmented non-traditional depictions of the human form there there's a really good online scholar talk that's paired with a museum exhibition that happened in 2012 that's online that we'll link to in the show notes and that's one where the scholar just examines the relationship of possible trauma like to alina's work and how it did or did not like manifest in it but a lot of people have taken a fairly open-ended approach to how to interpret her work because she herself was not exactly explicit in what she wanted people to interpret from. Exactly. She left it very open-ended. Right. So 
people have like responded to it as such. Uh, but because of that, like she didn't really fit into any neat categories. Right. In the early 2000s, like Alina's work did start gaining traction in various gallery and museum exhibitions, like in the Western Europe and United States. And here in the States, the most noticeable being the exhibition Alina Shaposnikov, Sculpture Undone, 1955 to 1972. And that took place at the Museum of Modern Art in New York and at the Hammer Museum in Los Angeles. Oh, man. It's getting everywhere. Yeah, so that has kind of since encouraged further critical and public attention on her work. Alina said in April of 1972 about her work, quote, Despite everything, I persist in attempting to fix in resin the imprints of her body. I am convinced that among all the manifestations of perishability, the human body is the most sensitive, the only source of all joy, all pain, all truth. Mm. On the love of consciousness because of its ontological misery, which is as inevitable as it is unacceptable. Damn. So that is Alina Shaposnikov. Not exactly a happy, feel-good story, but her work is really visually interesting and stunning. And especially when I saw her big belly sculpture, I was like, oh my goodness. I recognize so much in her artwork that I happen Mm -hmm. to use like within my own that I was like, I need to cover her. And um, unfortunately, it was just a little depressing involving Nazis and tuberculosis and cancer. So sorry, guys. I wish to hug her. I know. Next time I'll have something fun. I promise. You're not. But this isn't really going to end well either. So I. Oh, goodness. It's not going to be a great. It's not going to be a heartwarming episode all around. But here we are. <laughs> that's, that's life sometimes. You just got to learn to live with it. You're getting hit on both ends this time around. Sorry, guys. We'll do like fluffy bunnies next time. Fluffy bunnies. I will try to find a fluffy bunny uh, animal behaviorist for next time. That'll be my goal. But today, we are going to talk about a Curie. Not Madame Curie, because I refuse, refuse, but her daughter, Irene Curie. So I know Madame Curie was um, completely radioactive by the time that she died, but I'm glad she wasn't radioactive enough that she could still have children. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It was interesting. She had um, she had two daughters. So she had okay. Irene and then she had Eve. And, you know, Madame Curie, she died from leukemia. But that was, that was later. She was still able to educate and raise her children because in 1906, Irene's dad, Pierre Curie, dies from a freak horse wagon incident. Okay. <laughs> All right. We've got... Thank goodness this isn't like a Father's Day episode because that would suck. <laughs> oh, my God. Also, kudos to all the singer mothers out there. <laughs> Life's hard. Oh, my gosh. That's amazing. I can't. Like, that's how we're starting out. But the girls' education, the, it was prime. The same mm-hmm. year, uh, like, the, that same year that Pierre dies, uh, Marie realizes how smart Irene is and pulls her out of school. She becomes a part of what is called the cooperative. Okay, wait a minute, wait a minute. So you said she had another sister. Mm-hmm. Was the other sister was like, what the fuck am I? Like, shop loser? I, like, <laughs> I mean, I'm sure. I have to go to, like, normal school? I, I, you know, I wasn't sure if you went to the cooperative, but Irene definitely was, um, definitely was physics material for sure. <laughs> okay. All right, I get to see maybe a little bit of resentment starting fairly young because of that. Yeah. Sounds like she's going to a super school. Yeah, it was more like a homeschool. Okay. It was nine kids, and the parents were the most distinguished academics in France. Okay, all right. So, like, Chinese scholars, physicists, the whole whole shebang. Uh, The kids would just bounce Mm -hmm. around from house to house, and the parents would have lessons for them and have a hand in teaching these children. So, it was elite to say the least. That's cool. Yeah. I mean, it covered science, math, even sculpture, actually. It focused on self-expression and play and, like, not, like, the traditional structure of school. And Irene would be in that environment for about two years. Mm-hmm. Age 13, she spent her summer with her aunt in Poland because Marie Curie is from Poland. And the radioactive, ah. mm-hmm, the radioactive material that she discovered was called polonium after Poland, after the home country. This episode brought to you by the tourist department of Poland. <laughs> oh come, come visit us. Only some of our towns are anti-gay. <laughs> <No>. <laughs> it's fucking great. <laughs> 
So, yeah, no, legit, some of their towns, because they have a really conservative prime minister right uh-huh. now. Um, who was reelected or who was elected on like a really staunch like anti-gay platform? Oh, no. Some of the towns were like, okay, cool, great. We are officially declaring ourselves a gay-free zone. What? Yes. And because Poland's part of the EU, the EU is like, you can't do that. If you do that, you lose all EU funding. And some of these towns were like, whatever, we're gay-free. And so the EU was like, okay, you're EU money-free. Oh my god. And like. Fast forward a bit, and these towns were like, hey, so we kind of need that money, actually. (laughs) And the EU was like, well, maybe you shouldn't be a gay-free town. I don't know. The gays took their money with them. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. That was unfortunate. Sorry. Actions have consequences. Oh, my God. This world is crazy. Yeah. So there are legit still some towns that are adamantly anti-gay, even though they're, like, having horrific financial, like, crises right now because they're so stubborn they're not going to accept EU money because – I don't understand. I don't understand. They're anti-gay. There's no gay. They're gay-free. Oh, that's okay. Well, they can bury – they can run themselves into the ground with no money being gay-free. Yeah. Fuck off. (laughs) So – uh, yeah, so this episode brought to you by Poland. Poland. Um, so she spends every day of her summer there, but taking German and trig lessons. Not how I spent my summer as a child, but okay, nope. that's cool. Nope. And then when summer ended, she ended up going back to France because she was born, I didn't even tell you, she was born uh, September 12th, 1987 in Paris. Wait, you said 1987. Or 1890. 1897. So when she gets back, she was actually enrolled in a regular high school. And by regular, I mean it was a private non-denominational all-girls school called College Civine. Okay. Yeah. So she graduates and heads to college in 1914. Two years later, she gets a bachelor's degree from the University of Paris, also known as mm-hmm. Sorbonne. I probably butchered that. She's 19 at this time. Mm-hmm. It's 1916, though, and World War One is raging. Yeah. Yeah. So her mom, Madame Curie, developed mobile radiography mm-hmm. units to help war efforts. And Irene steps in and helps her mom with the project. Oh, okay. And is that just, like, scanning yeah. scanning the wounded to see if they've got, like, broken bones and yeah, stuff? Yeah, and, like, finding shrapnel and stuff. Okay. So, right. you know, she's Marie's assistant, and a few months later, she ends up working by herself in Belgium. I don't know what, what caused them to do their thing, but they're both, like, still okay. doing war efforts in different spaces. So Irene mm-hmm. taught doctors there how to locate shrapnel and the images taken, and then she got really great at making and maintaining these units by the end of it, she received a military medal for her work during the war. Oh, nice. After it, she and she heads back to Sorbonne. She wants to complete a second degree in mathematics and physics. I have no idea what the first one was. Mm-hmm. She finishes that up in 1918, and then she hops over to the Radium Institute to seek a, a doctorate. So I'm going to tell you a few things about the Radium Institute. All right. I'm, I'm all yours. It's in Paris. It's now called the Curie Institute because Irene's mom and dad founded and built it. Okay. Mm -hmm. All right. There she worked on her doctorate and became her mother's lab assistant. Mm -hmm. Her thesis was on the alpha decay of polonium, which again is the element that her parents discovered that was named after Poland. So go ahead and let that sink in. (laughs) Just as long as you're not like physically letting the polarium sink in, because that sounds a little carcinogenic to me. Intense. I would be so stressed out defending my thesis on an element to the person that discovered that element and their Nobel Prize winner and also your mother. Yeah, like imagine the intensity of it. And then like at the same time, she like, you know, does a little like tappy thing with her foot and she's like, sit up straight. And you're like, yes, mother. I mean, doc, I mean, <laughs> anyway, so polarium, blah, 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 blah. Like, <laughs> I don't know how I would handle that. Like... Like, when your mother is a fucking Nobel Prize winner and the person who's telling you whether or not you're going to get a fucking doctorate, like, I can't, I can't, I can't, I couldn't even imagine. Um, But that family is still holds the, the, like, they're basically the family with the most Nobel Prizes in their, uh, to their name. I mean, like, no worry to them. Like, personally, like, my family's not coming for them. <laughs> they're safe. <laughs> like, we're good. Like, what? It's crazy. But she did end up getting her doctorate in 1925. And during this time, she was tasked with the responsibility of teaching radiochemical lab techniques to younger students. And this is how she met Frederick Jolie. 
I'm going to say Jolie. I don't mm. really know how to say it. It's French. But they get married in 1926. A year later, they had a daughter named Helen. She ended mm-hmm. up becoming a nuclear physicist later in life. Jeez. Okay. <laughs> That's cool. <laughs> and within two years of their marriage, they were assigning their research jointly because in the Curie family, if you can't do radiochemical research together, he's not worth marrying. I mean, that is not a bad standard to live by. <laughs> no, it's really not. I mean, never mind the fact like I couldn't do it, but like whatever. whatever. It's a pretty goals. solid standard. Couple goals. Yeah. <laughs> so their original work focused on the atomic nuclei and like just atoms, nucleus and, and atoms, not just, mm-hmm. yeah. And it actually identified, their work identified both the positron and the neutron. We're going to go a little bit into science here. Okay. All right. Thank you. Because right now I'm just like, oh, okay. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Mm -hmm. It's going to be real. No idea. So we we do know, we've covered this. The neutron is a subatomic particle with a neutral charge that lives in the nucleus of an atom. Yes. 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 I knew that. You remember that? Yes. Okay. And then the other. I do now. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> the other two things are the proton and the electron. So the protons and neutrons live in the nucleus in the middle of the atom. And the electron is the tiny thing that whizzes around them. They're sev- they, depending on what atom it is, could be one, it could be three, it could be seven. It's a whole thing. There are shells. We don't okay. get into that. Okay. But the electron Thank is you. the smaller atomic particle that's negative. Okay. Negative guy. The positron is something new. I don't think I've covered it. It is also a subatomic particle. It's called the anti-electron. It is because it's literally, it has a positive charge. So it's like the same size really as the electron. So it kind of like negates it. But it is naturally emitted during beta decay, which is the kind of decay that radioactive forms of elements go through in order to obtain a more sustainable existence. Remember that all radioactive elements have a shelf life? Remember that? Yeah. Yes. It's throughout yes. the shelf life that these particles are shed. And again, they have a positive charge or like a proton, but they are significantly smaller. And protons do not get annihilated, but positrons, little guys, do. Know that they exist. <laughs> okay. That's good enough for me. You know what? I'm not the nuclear physicist. It's your it dad. Is, it so, is my dad. Like we're good. Um, but if you've we're ever good. had a PET scan, um, which is short for positron emission tomography scan, it's a sort of it's like a it's a radiograph essentially. It's it's kind of like a <sighs> they inject a pretty safe isotope into your bloodstream, like a radioactive one into your bloodstream, and it undergoes beta decay. So they like basically the stuff, uh, the positrons that are emitted in your bloodstream, they interact with electrons in the body so they can like, uh, each interaction is a little dot on the map. You put the dots together, you get an image. So if there are like masses that shouldn't be there, you'd be like, that's not supposed to be there. And then you go from that. Okay. It's pretty cool. All right. Just another technique. Yeah. To see inside the body. <laughs> that's so wild. Okay. No, that's cool. Um. Yeah. Anyway. Irene and Frederick practically identify these two things, but they didn't fucking realize it. Oh, had no clue. Okay, I don't. I don't know. I, I don't know the details, but they didn't claim it. The discoveries were then later claimed by Carl David Anderson and James Chadwick, who I guess built off of their work and were like, "Oh, this is a neutron. This is a positron." Were they American? Because they sound super. They do American. sound. I didn't. I didn't look into them. I'm just like, "Fuck you!" Okay. And then I moved on. And then it would have been awesome to claim that, though, because people still thought atoms were solid balls back then. Oh, they're so misinformed. (laughs) The discovery of these particles allowed for a better understanding of the atomic structure because it is not a solid ball. It's just not. There's a shit ton going on Uh, there. Yeah. No, I totally knew that like (laughs) 10 seconds ago. So somewhere in there, 1932, their son Pierre was born, named after Irene's father. Dad. Mm-hmm. And then 1934 hit, and Irene and Frederick found something else, something huge. They were hanging in the lab, bombarding aluminum foil with alpha particles. Alpha particles consist of two protons and two neutrons bound together into a particle identical to helium-4 nucleus. It's basically a helium atom. Don't think too much about it. Sure. I wasn't. <laughs> Don't worry. <laughs> Anyway, they threw some helium nuclei at aluminum foil and noticed that when they stopped throwing these nuclei at it, 
like Adam's Adam, it kept like knitting mm-hmm. shit off of it. And it it suddenly became like a radioactive isotope of phosphorus. Like it was no longer aluminum. Okay. So in Mangan language, <laughs> so you got a piece of like aluminum foil uh-huh. discarded from someone's <laughs> leftover like hoagie that they had. <laughs> and they essentially have little lasers out there zapping it. So little laser like poo, 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 poo. But oddly enough, when you turn off the lasers, the aluminum foil has like a slight glow to it. <laughs> I don't know if it glowed. It probably didn't and glow. And they're like, is that, is it like the lasers that we shot at it? Or is that like the Italian seasoning on it? Is it just really potent? Like, So would that be an apt Megan visualization of sure. their science sure. they and were doing? Yeah, you know, phosphorus, Thank you. phosphorus. We'll, we'll, just, we'll just keep it like that. Okay, cool. Awesome. No, Thank guys, you. That's not correct, but okay. Hey, hey, I can hear you. I'm right here. I'm not going to get into it. It's not great. Rude. Okay. All right. Okay. So they're doing science to a piece of aluminum foil. That's, did they win a Nobel Prize for that? Uh, Yeah. Oh, my God. Okay. (laughs) That was the best hoagie they ever spent their money on. They could also turn like boron into radioactive nitrogen, magnesium into silicon. They were alchemists. That's black magic shit. I know. It's crazy. So nuclear medicine as a field was growing at that point. People would okay. have to find radioactive acid isotopes in the wild before this. It was costly and ineffective. <laughs> what? What do you use? What's that smile? I'm just imagining them trying to find radioactive <laughs> shit in the wild. Like, <laughs> It was not great. It was not great. But that thing, like that particular discovery... Irene and husband mm-hmm. and her husband just stumbled over the fact that radioactive substances could be manufactured. That's some dangerous shit. Yeah. 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 Well, they did it for the nuclear medicine part. Because now they could, like, they could explore nuclear medicine, like, quicker, easier, right? Mm-hmm. So in 1935, they did... They did get a Nobel Prize for chemistry in that. And then Irene was offered a professorship at the Faculty of Science at the University of Paris. And then... I know! And then... Well, I mean, that's... I'm sorry, that's really cool, but, like, I also know what's happening in a few years. So did she accept? Oh, of course she should. Yeah. Yeah, she did. Okay. Okay. Uh, And then she moved on to the director of the Radium Institute, which was the institute that her parents founded in 1946. The work done by her there that focused on the radium nuclei was actually the work that Lisa Meitner based her nuclear fission experiments on. And you remember Lisa Meitner. Yeah. So, okay. And Lisa Meitner was someone that we covered all the way back in February of this Mm -hmm. year. Yeah. Which already seems like forever ago. (laughs) Irene also promoted atomic energy uh, use in France. So using more of that instead of like coal and shit. Mm-hmm. Part of the National Council of French wo- uh, Women was on the World Peace Council. She would obviously be speaking out against Nazism at this time, spoken in favor of women's education. And in 1939, she locked, she and her husband locked all the documentation in a vault. They were worried how the military would use her research on like nuclear fission and atomic use. Yeah. And Lisa Meitner was Fair. the same way. Fair. When Lisa Meitner was was asked to work on a bomb, she was like, no, I want no part of that. Yeah. yeah. It's it's all about medicine and making the world a better place. And she wasn't about the misuse of it. So good on them. Mm-hmm. They still did a lot of amazing things. Like, What was life like for them during World War II? Because there was a point like France was occupied by Nazi Germany. So I just wondered if they were able to continue their studies oh, yeah. even under like occupation or if they like – temporarily like fled no, or they didn't temporarily they just stuck around in paris i think it's just because like okay. i didn't get a lot of information about like how they acted through world war ii but i think also like mm-hmm. that was her home like yeah you know she had a, she had polish family but she was french right she was she okay. was born and raised there like she wasn't going to go anywhere like her family was there mm-hmm. her Kids were there. The fucking institute was there. That was where the legacy of the Curies were. And I don't imagine, mm-hmm. like, at that point, you are the daughter of, of these two amazing physicists. Like, I don't think it affected them the way that it affected normal individuals. Other yeah. people? Okay. So they're. I mean, of course, might it affected them. had a little bit of protection them. under the compromised French yeah, government. Yeah, of course, it affected okay. them. But I think they had kind of like, um, I don't know. 
a level of privilege that just kind of shielded them from more immediate implications of Nazi rule. Okay. All right. I was just curious because it sounds like, you know, if we're rolling to facts about like the late 1940s, that obviously they were able to continue their professional work like through that Mm -hmm. period. And she was still able to like speak out against what was going on. It wasn't like she was sitting back and Mm -hmm. watching it. She was she was taking political work, like activism into her into her hands as well. So she was using that platform that she had and trying Mm -hmm. to do the best that she could with the resources that were given to her, which is yeah, the, only, the best thing you can do when you have power like that. So what was it? Yeah, she was a member of several uh, foreign ac- uh, academies of the numerous scientific societies, had honorary doctor's degrees from several universities, was undersecretary for, of state for science. She advocated for like funding a scientific research to like for France. And she helped design a huge center for nuclear physics at the University or- of Orsay, which is south of Paris. Oh. Yeah. So she was like, okay, well, my work is on this, but, like, I want to make sure that we have, like, nuclear power and we can use this. Like, we can continue to work with these materials and see what we can do with them. Mm-hmm. Oh, wait, wait, wait. She did have tuberculosis at one point in her life. <laughs> God damn it. That is not how she died. Okay. Oh, okay. That is <laughs> good. Tuberculosis in today's episode is only fatal in one of three cases. One of three cases. She got it. She recovered. But just like her mother, her work caught up to her. And she died of leukemia in 1956. Okay. How old was she? She was 58 years old. Okay. So she she had about a little over 10 years on my artist today. Yeah. We're not not going for longevity here, guys. Nah, not today. Cancer beat out twice. Sorry. But- they both did some amazing work. No, I'm pretty impressed with the fact that that type of science interest was almost like passed down from generation to generation and they legitimately kept it in the family. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. It was like when you're a curie, you're a curie. I think it's, it was funny that I was actually looking up what her kids did and I was like, oh, Helen's a nuclear mm-hmm. physicist. And then I got to Pierre and I was like, oh, he's a biologist? <laughs> oh, okay. I mean, a little black sheep of the family, but like, okay, I guess. That's weird, but okay. <laughs> Yeah, God forbid one of them wants to be an artist. <laughs> well, what I believe Eve was like a writer, wasn't she? So that's kind of like a... Yeah, the little bit I know about her sister that was not one of the chosen as a child to go to... What was the special <laughs> the school? The cooperative. The cooperative, which sounds completely culty. <laughs> not going to lie. So the Curie child that was not in a cult and also did not die of cancer... <laughs> She she legitimately lived to be about 100, 102, I oh, believe. Oh, damn. She was 101 or 102. And she became a noted journalist and also a biographer of their mother's mm-hmm. work. Yeah. So she wrote, like, the definitive biography of Madame Curie. That's so cool. I mean, but even yeah. then she, oh. like, did something great with her life. So I don't, like, they were all, like, powerful and wonderful. Yes, and a- apparently... She would joke that she was the Curie in her family that did not have a Nobel Prize. Oh. <laughs> That's true. Yes, I imagine there were quite numerous cocktail parties where that got quite a laugh, and she was like, I'm partially dead I'm partially inside. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you. Or, uh, or but like yes, no, she did. Like she, I know she's. Christmas where they all get together. <laughs> she's like, don't mind me, guys. Never mind my accolades for my investigative journalism work. Whatever. Cool. <laughs> I'm going to go see if they need any help in the I'm kitchen. Keep drinking. <laughs> yep. Um, so that, that's the little bit I know about her sister, but not scientists. But all right. Well, as always, if you guys have made it this far, happy 50th episode. Also, I'm sorry. It's a downer. I, yeah. We did not think this. <laughs> sorry, story, guys. Did we? <laughs> <laughs> sorry. <laughs> Next episode, I promise it'll be Bunnies. fun. I don't know what it'll Bunnies be. Bunnies everywhere. It'll be, <laughs> it'll be fun. So, as always, if you've made it this far, we really appreciate it. And we're glad that there's a good many of you that have stuck around for about 50 episodes or so. So, Milan, if people want to see more about who we've covered this episode, where can they go? So, we have a website, myfavoritefeminist.com. We have an Instagram and Facebook, both under My Favorite Feminist. Our Twitter is at Milana Megan. That's at M-I-L-E-N-A-M-E-G-A-N. If you want to email us, we're info at myfavoritefeminist.com. Um, you can find us, you can listen to us, any like major podcasts, you know, because you're listening to us right now. Just take two seconds to like, subscribe, share, comment, let us know. Are you the black sheep of your family? Oh, I, 
think for both of us, the answer is most definitely. Most definitely. <laughs> oh my god, I have caused um, a lot of stress in my family, but I'm not even mad. <laughs> I mean, thinking about it, my my grandmother is like focusing on you having a child, and I'm like, <laughs> I know, and I was like, well, what? Like at first, I was like, well, like why? Like why isn't she like getting on my ass? And then I was like, yo, she doesn't want me to procreate. <laughs> she doesn't know that she doesn't want me to procreate. <laughs> That's true. Yeah, like you keep things close to your like close to you, and I'm just like fuck off. But she has to like think. That we're best friends for a reason. Like, we have the same There's a thoughts. reason. Yeah. But yeah, no. I I mean, we are, like, ride or die. <laughs> yes. So she might think that I'm the better of the two evils. Nope. Nope. Same evil. <laughs> different packages. <laughs> Sorry. Fucking. I'm just the quiet version of Elena. <laughs> Everybody's like, oh. I'm the slightly shorter. <laughs> Everybody's always like, oh, Megan is so sweet. She's such a sweetheart. We love her so much. And I'm like in my no head idea. going, you have no fucking clue. None no of you. <laughs> like, have you smelled her vegetarian farts? They're terrible. <laughs> <laughs> terrible. Oh, my God. Loving Evil it. lives within me. <laughs> All right. Uh, well, as always, guys, until next time. Bye. <laughs> You capture the exact moment in your Sims game where the Death Eaters are sucking out his soul of yes. your dead boyfriend. Yes. <laughs> also, why is the kitty cat just batting at the bottom of the Green Reaper's, like, cape? He's not, like, <laughs> that cat, useless, absolutely useless. <laughs> the human's dead and the cat sees death and it's like, Hey, so I haven't been fed in about 45 minutes, actually. <laughs> so if you could just mosey on over to my kibble, I totally haven't eaten today already twice. <laughs> Would I lie to you? <laughs> and then, oh, he had three cats. Trashy, Duke Garbage, and <laughs> Prince Trash. <laughs> That's actually Duke Garbage. <laughs> you know what? He would. 